If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You are listening to the Hiking Radio Network, where we talk the walk with shows by hikers about hikers for everybody. Welcome to the Trail Dames Podcast, where we speak with women who love to dance upon this earth. My will may be sharp as a spike, but the body I inhabit is small, flimsy, and middle-aged. Perhaps my limitations themselves propel me towards mountains that wring from me everything that I've got. I want to be sleek and fast and tough. I want to lope up and rattle down these intimidating mountains, confident and unafraid. Time gnaws at me, though. At my age, climbing won't likely get any easier. But today, if I'm able to make it up and down Mount Monroe, if I can find the heart and the strength, Then after today, I'll only have 39 more mountains to climb. These are the words of Cheryl Sukers. Cheryl is a new friend of mine, and those words are quoted from her book, 48 Peaks, Hiking and Healing in the White Mountains. When I read those words, the first thing I got, I have to tell you, was goosebumps. Because for years, that is exactly how I felt. Well, except for the small and flimsy part, I was not those things. Rather, I was round, rigid, and tight, but my will, too, was strong and sharp, and it was laughingly misaligned with the reality of my body. And like Cheryl, I wanted to be so many things. I wanted to be fast and easy and capable. So when I read her words, I was already hooked. I knew that her book, this book, it was for me. And then when I read that last sentence, that after that day's struggles and pain and exhaustion, she still had so, so much further to go. Well, that took my breath away. Have you ever set a goal that big or that daunting? Those few sentences that Cheryl wrote, they're just really a small part of the actual preface of the book. I mean, it's not even getting into the book itself. It's just the very beginning. And that mixture of honest self-reflection, doubt, and complete courage in the face of a giant goal, well, it's safe to say I was hooked. 
I knew that Cheryl's story was one I wanted to read. And after I read it, I knew that it was one that I wanted to share with you guys. I'm so excited. Today's guest is Cheryl Sukers, and her story is extraordinary. And I think that every woman will find some of her own fears and her hopes and her dreams, all that good stuff. I think you're going to find it all wrapped up in it. So thank you for joining me as I talk to Cheryl today. And we talk about her book, 48 Peaks. We talk about her climbing 4,000 footers. And we talk about writing and our love for nature. After the interview, hang out and I'm going to share a few of my own Appalachian Trail journals with you. But for now, sit back and meet Cheryl. Thanks for joining us. My name is Anna Huthmaker. All my friends call me Mudbutt. And you are listening to the Trail Dames Podcast. Hey, Cheryl, thank you so much for being on the Trail Dames Podcast. I'm really excited because in the intro of the show, I read a little blurb from your book and your writing from the very first time I ever read it just moved me and touched me and made me a huge fan. And so I am super excited that you're here today. So thank you. Oh, Anna, I'm just so happy to be here. Well, I have to tell you that the way I have acted with you and with your book is not normal for me. I love to read. I'm a a voracious reader and I love the act of writing. And I believe that everyone should write. And I'm moved by words a lot. That is not unusual for Mm me. What is unusual is to read a book and literally from like two pages into the preface, already be so invested and already have tears in my eyes and already be laughing and already have kind of like a fangirl mentality, like I'm going to meet this woman. <laughs> that was really unusual for me. And so um, so I'm really excited to share your story with the listeners of the podcast, because I think that there is literally, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, a commercial, but I believe that in your book, there is something for everybody and that every woman will find something to connect to. Thank you. Um, Well, no, thank you. (laughs) So the thing that is really most exciting, I think, for our listeners about Cheryl, I have to tell you, is that she didn't come to her stage of life as a writer. But before we get into your job, I want to ask you, have you always been a hiker? No, not at all. (laughs) When did you become a hiker? How did you, like, what made that happen? (laughs) Well, I had hiked a little bit in my 20s and another tiny bit in my early 30s. But then... Um, now, can I ask you how old you are now? Sure. Is that okay yes. to ask you? Oh, of course. <laughs> I'm proud of it. I'm 60... Hold on. I'm 69. I just turned okay. 69. <laughs> awesome. And so I started being a hiker for real when I was 48, just turning 48. And... There were two reasons for that. One was I do like sports and I I like to be active. And I had tried swimming and had to have shoulder surgery. So I had to give that up. And I had played tennis and then I had to have elbow surgery. So I had to give that up. So I was looking for a sport that didn't require my shoulders <laughs> very much. And um, so I thought, you know, well, I'll just use my feet and I'll try this hiking thing. But mainly, I needed a sport because I had just changed careers. I'd been in the business world for 20 years, and I was finally going to do 
something I had wanted to do since childhood, really, which was to write a novel because I love books as you do. And I'm a voracious reader as you are. And I thought, well, you know, I read so many books, surely writing a book can't be that hard. And so I told Larry, my husband, you know, I really want to take just a year, one year, I'm going to take a year off, I'm going to write this book, this novel, and then, you know, I'll go find another job. And he said, okay, but it was not going well. I, you know, it's sort of like assuming that because you love to eat, you're going to be a fabulous cook. Well, I was not at all a fabulous fiction writer. I was, I had been good in my business career. I was considered a very good writer, but man, the difference between fiction and expository writing was enormous and I was clueless. So I was kind of desperate to find something that could give me a sense of success, which I no longer had and was used to having from my former career. So I decided to choose something very concrete, very specific, and totally unambiguous. In other words, something completely different from writing. And I decided to hike. And I decided to hike this mountain called Mount Tripyramid in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And it involved hiking three peaks, climbing three peaks, and it was 12.1 miles round trip and 3,000 feet of elevation gain. And I had no clue, Anna. I just had no clue. <laughs> well, I, had to, I just had to tell you, so you know, I, have a, I have a lot of experience hiking. And for our listeners who are new to the hiking world or who maybe have never hiked up in the Northeast, that is crazy hard. <laughs> oh my gosh. I could never do that in one day, I don't think. Well, you know what it, What I tell people now is because I had no, I mean, I understood 3,000 feet of elevation gain meant when we started off, we'd be at one level and at the top of the mountain, we'd be 3,000 feet higher. But I had no idea what that would feel like in the body. And so now I tell people, Picture for yourselves a two-story house with an attic, right? And then imagine another one just like it next door and pick up the second one and put it on top of the first one and then keep going. And you have to add up 100 houses. Oh, my gosh. To get to 3,000 feet, right? And we'd be doing that on these rocky, rooty, ankle-turning, knee-busting trails. It was, it was just so much harder than I ever imagined. But somehow, you finished that hike at the end of that first day, and you still went back for more? I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, you know, it took us 10 hours because I, I, I went with my uh, next door neighbor and best friend, Kate. Well, I call her Kate in the book to protect her privacy. And I'd also invited along my best friend from college, Sarah. And we just kept going. You know, we, we sort of, because there were three of us, we helped each other through. And I tell you, it took a week for my quadriceps to unclench, you know, afterward. <laughs> that but feeling I, I know. <laughs> I was hooked, Anna. I was totally, totally hooked. 
you know, it was so beautiful. That hike in particular has the amazing feature of being, I want to say, four or five different hikes in one. You get all these different environments. I mean, some are very alpine and it's like you're in Sherwood Forest, you know, and some are just climbing up hand over hand up boulders and rocks and some are alongside a stream and, you know, all these different things. And I think the turning point for me was when Kate pointed out to me, because it was cold, it was early October, and I think it was about 33 degrees out. And we're hiking up these uh, these boulders and I'm dying. And then Kate calls me over to look at something. And there's this whole row of these sparkling icicles hanging from a, from a rock. And behind them is this emerald mossy background. And I'm telling you, it just, it was the first time that I really thought about nature on a hike. You know, I was like, whoa, what is this? This is so beautiful and so astounding. And the two of us had this incredible moment together. And it just gave me so much energy for a while, right? But things like that helped me get through. Well, you know, in trail names, we talk a lot about, and something that really drives me personally, is that there are things that you get to see because you worked hard to get there to see them. And so many people never get to see those beautiful icicles and that moss and that sky behind it and the rocks, because I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, mm. this whatever this extraordinary view that we get to see at that time, it is because we worked really hard to get there and no one else gets to see that. And for me, that triggers not only a pride in myself, but it just reminds me of the beauty that's out there to see in this world. And it sounds to me like that's kind of what grabbed you. Absolutely. I mean, I, as I say, I was in it to find a sense of success and to to develop a sense of mastery over something, anything at that point. But what really fed me on the hikes was the natural world. You know, it, seeing wildflowers and, and learning who they were, you know, who was with me on this hike besides my human friends, you know, or my family, as sometimes that was the case. Um, but, you know, what kind of trees were they and what kind of weirdo lichen is this, you know, and what is lichen anyway? And, you know, how amazing the different kinds of mosses and the patterns in tree bark. I mean, the whole thing just kind of blew my mind. And really, well, I'm sure you have this experience. It feeds your soul, no? Oh, I mean, totally. It totally. just, I would come back and even though my body would be aching and, you know, probably my knee, I had to ice my knee all the time, and all kinds of stuff like that. My energy level was so high. I mean, I'd be high for like a week or two afterward. Just, it's like authors sometimes and, and, and other artists think about this internal well of creativity that we all have. And it could be, you could think of it as a well of vitality too. And every time I would go hiking, that well would just get 
filled up and up and up. And I'd come back, I'd be just brimming with the stuff, you know, and it would be overflowing and, and fueling me. And oh, it was just such a high. And I also, I don't know if you have this too, but I loved the feeling that I was part of something much bigger than me and and that I fit in somewhere as a being among other beings. You know, that's the- exactly how I felt with the Appalachian Trail when I first, you know, learned about it and stepped into that community. I felt the exact same way and that we all had this communal love and respect for it. Yes, it's such such a gift. That's one reason why I, I hope that people reading my book will become more committed to getting outdoors and getting especially out into our wild places, you know, any way they can, anyhow they can, um, any time they can, and also to become even more committed to protecting it. You know, there's a that wonderful T-shirt that says, there is no planet B. You know? That's true. Right? <laughs> We've got to work to keep this one healthy and and alive. Well, just speaking for myself, I will say that the difference between before I ever started hiking and after was that I understood the importance of those kind of things. When I was younger, if you had said, you know, protect our wild lands, you know, don't cut down trees if you don't have to. If you had said those things, I would have, I would have nodded knowingly and because I wanted to look cool, but I wouldn't have really understood <laughs> it, you know. But yeah. once you do get out there and like you were talking about and you see this world that you're in and then all of a sudden you start understanding that, yeah, we do have to protect it. And it's about respecting it and loving it and wanting other people to be able to see it and love it as well. So exactly. it just it did. It buried that deep into my gut and it's never gone anywhere ever since then. I am so with you. And uh, I I always feel so lucky on a trail. You know, I'm so grateful that I get to be there. And, you know, my fantasy is that everybody would get a chance to be out there because I'm, this may sound, I don't know, strange, but, or, or zealous, too zealous perhaps, but I really feel that it changes a person to be out there and that if everyone got a chance to be out there and experience this, we would all be different, I think, and, and more appreciative and kinder to each other and to our planet and more grateful. Oh, I agree completely. And for me, it, it, it always when I want to talk about it, it comes out with all those sounds like a bunch of Facebook memes. But you know, this thing about oh, you see the world so much bigger and you like you said, you're more grateful and, and you're such a small part in a big world. But that is the very truth. And for people and it doesn't have to be, you know, for me, it's the mountains and the woods that is that is my place, but it can be on the ocean. It could be smack dab in the middle of the desert, but for you to be able to step outside of your room, your house, your car, and to see this great, big, giant, beautiful marble that we live on. I mean, it, it changes your paradigm for everything. I think. I couldn't agree more. I mean, even if all you see is you're walking down the street and a weed is pushing its way up through a crack in the pavement. I mean, what a lesson in perseverance and, and tenacity. Yes. Just Definitely. So, so remarkable. So I want to back up for just a second. Um, yes, and I ma'am. want to actually 
talk about the physical. So what I talked about in the intro was your quote when you were saying that your will is sharp as a spike, but the body that you inhabit is small, flimsy, and middle-aged. And <laughs> I, first of all, I have to tell you how much I loved that. It, it, it really hit me. But tell me really quickly, how many years ago was that that you hiked those three peaks, that first hike? That was in uh, the end of 1998. So I was 48 years old. So that's now 21 years ago. Okay. So, which is kind of interesting, 48 years old and you wrote about the 48 peaks. Yes. Um, But I find all the time that women are say to themselves, and I am guilty, I will tell you totally, say to ourselves, well, if I were 20, I could do this, but I'm 50, I'm 60, I can't do these things. And I love to, I love when this idea that you went and you did it, you had to ice your knee a lot. I bet there was a lot of pain. Like you said, sometimes it took days for your quadriceps to unclench. But our bodies are meant to move and they're meant to move at every age, right? Yes, totally. So I love the fact that you went out there and you started this big, giant, fat, hairy goal of hiking (laughs) all those 4,000 footers at the age of 48. I think that's kind of extraordinary. I mean, did you have that goal to begin with or when did that happen? I didn't know a thing about the 4,000 footers. I had just picked this one mountain to climb and it was on Mount Tri-Pyramid that I first heard about the 4,000 footer club. We were, Sarah, Kate and I were just about to um, reach our, well, we did reach our second peak of the day, middle peak. And there was a guy there who told us about the 4,000 footers and how you could join the 4,000 footer club after, only after you had hiked all 48 of the 4,000 footers. And, you know, my initial reaction was, what a crazy thing to do. I mean, who would do such a crazy thing? And then, of course, you know, I thought, I bet there, I bet there aren't too many women who do that. And that always is a hook for me. You know, I mean, I was often in business. I was often the only woman in the room, one of the first women to do this, that, or the other. And I had been a feminist for a long, 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 long time. So that kind of, uh, that really intrigued me. And so sometime, I'd say maybe three or four weeks after that Mount Tri-Pyramid climb, I shipped off my application to join the 4,000 footer club, which means you mail them and they send you back the list of the, of the official 48 mountains that, and you have to record the date on which you hiked it and the people you were with, or if you were by yourself, whatever. And, um, and then when you finish, that's what you mail in to these wonderful volunteers who run the place. Is there a time limit or can you take two years or 10 years? You can take your whole life to do it. It took me 10 years. There are people who do it in a year. There are people who do it in 20 or 30. I mean, there are people who do it in a month, believe it or not. Just from a geographic standpoint, let's make sure all of our listeners understand. This is in the the Northeast. Yes. So are they all in New Hampshire? Yes. All of these are in the White Mountain National Forest in New Hampshire. Gotcha. I know when I've talked to people out west, they're like, 
4,000 feet, pfft, you know, that's nothing. It's different though. It is different. I have hiked in New Hampshire. I've hiked in the Whites. It is, I'm, I'm just telling all you people that are out West, it really is different. And these are some crazy hard mountains. <laughs> well, they're old. And so, the, you know, they're not like the youngsters in the Rockies or on the West Coast. And so they're not as tall and big. But it means that you don't get those lovely, long, sweet switchbacks and you don't have nice footing. You know, you have difficult footing because they're kind of old and you have to go kind of straight up and straight down. That's sort of the way it goes. That's my memory of the whites, because when I tried to hike the Appalachian Trail, um, the whites, I tell everybody they chewed me up and spit me out. But (laughs) I remember I remember going straight up and straight down the just big giant rocks, you know, and I'm five feet tall, you know, and at that point in time, weighed like 260 pounds. Let me tell you, getting this body up those rocks was really hard. But I just remember thinking it's nothing but big rock steps up and down, up and down. So I think it's so extraordinary when people have the will to do it more than once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we Larry and I just got back. We I'm still hiking, and uh, we just got back from um, Yellowstone National Park in the Grand Tetons, and we kept saying to each other, "I can't believe this footing." I mean, this is so technically easy to hike. The altitude is an issue for me. I do get altitude sickness, but you know, once I'm acclimated then those hikes are just so much easier. It's amazing. And it's all because of the footing and the big, long switchbacks. Like you said, the the age of the mountain says a lot about it. It does. (laughs) So let's go back to when you started to hike and you started getting out there and climbing more mountains. Tell me how that affected your writing. Because you said that when you came to the idea of writing a book that you quickly realized that fiction writing is different and difficult and So how did the hiking actually really help that or change that? It it helped. It also hindered in the sense of, I'll tell you the hindered part because it's quicker. Because it took a lot of time away from writing to go and, you know, because I had to plan the the hikes because I wasn't joining somebody else's group. I was collecting my own group and finding, figuring out which trails and how to go and you know, uh, signing up for huts if I was staying in a hut or whatever. So that took a a lot of time away from writing. But where it helped was, well, eventually it gave me the idea for a book, which was not fiction, of course, but nonfiction. So that's a major thing. But also it was back to filling up that well. You know, I wouldn't even know that I was depleted creatively until I went hiking and came back. And I was like, whoa, this is so different when I sat down to write. And it did, you know, it took me a long time to write this book, parts of 13 years. So it, too, was a marathon kind of endeavor. And the mountains kept me going. You know, they gave me a sense of success for all those years that it took me to learn the craft of writing and to sit down and put words on the page and finish a first draft and go back and finish four drafts and, you know, still be refining and all of that. Well, one of the things I absolutely love about 
your story is that I think a lot of us don't want to try something new because we feel like we're supposed to be great at it to begin with. And I was listening to a TED talk about this the other day, this idea that we all start off good. That's just not true. Most of us start off at ground zero, not having the skill set, not having any clue where to start. And once we start just not being good at something, I think that scares so many people away. But for you, you went, okay, I'm going to learn to be a better hiker. Okay, I'm going to learn new writing skills. And the fact that that didn't scare you, but actually kind of gave you impetus to move forward. I think there's a great lesson in that for all of us. Well, you know, I was also very lucky to have a wonderful coach and Kathy Utschneider. And she's, as I say in the book, and she encouraged me to have an experimental frame of mind. And I think that's so important. I mean, I love to learn. It's something that it just turns me on, you know, me it's too. something that gets me excited. And in addition, Kathy would say, you know, well, why don't we think of this as an experiment? You know, staying overnight in a hut, which I'd never done before, had no idea what it would be like. The thought, I'll tell you, the thought of sleeping with, you know, 48 strangers or whatever, 40 or 50 strangers, all these guys snoring away at night, you know, it was not something that really appealed to me. But I tried it. And it it really helped with the hiking and you know, you could bag more peaks that way more efficiently. So a lot of things, I think, in life, if we view them as experiments, then there's less pressure. And it's all about learning. And I remember once Kathy told me that some of the Olympians she coaches, that many Olympians go to their first Olympics and don't medal. And it's all about learning how to be at the Olympics, how to train, how to sleep, what to eat, you know, when to arrive, all, all of those things, because it's so huge. And often it's the second time they go that they actually achieve medals. That makes total sense to me because, you know, we just don't, we don't like fall out of the womb being Michael Jordan. Right. You know, or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and anytime you throw yourself into a new environment, whether it's the Olympics or a hut on top of the White Mountains, you know, it does take you a little while to get everything situated and settled and get your mind right for it. But just to not let those things scare us away, you know, what a great True. thing that is. True. We haven't mentioned this yet, but. Another thing that hiking did for me was it really helped me heal from breast cancer. Well, I was going to ask you about that because mm. in the middle of this 10 years of writing a book and of climbing 4,000 footers, you got diagnosed with cancer. Yes, ma'am. And, you know, it wasn't even in the middle. I had, you're absolutely right. I had started, I'd done five of the 48 before I was diagnosed. And, there were many times when I was sick and when I was in treatment where I worried that I would never get back on a mountain again. And I had to believe that I would. And I had to, you know, sort of set my goal out there, like planting a flag and then climbing, clawing my way up to it, you know. It helped me heal 
both by giving me all that energy that we've talked about, by taking me out of my body and my sense of being uh, a patient, you know, being ill, my sense of being so much less than I had been before physically. And it gave me this place that was just spacious enough, majestic enough to absorb some of the grief that I felt over the loss of Kate, who died um, in 2002. And it gave me a place to heal, you know, really, I mean, both mentally, physically, and actually emotionally from the trauma of of cancer, because cancer is traumatic, no matter what kind you've got or how it goes. It's, you know, you're terrified of losing your life, really. Well, and let me ask you about that, because one of the things that I think is a constant in all of your stories is courage. You had the courage to leave a career and try something new. That's already unusual. You had the courage to try 4,000 footers. You know, you had the courage to write a book. Um, but when people hear that word often, I think they think about, you know, like Hallmark cards and sunrises and oh, courage. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is the courage comes from a place of you just use the word terrifying. You know, to me, that fear and how how we have the opportunity to live with it and not let it but not let it change us. That right there is where courage is kind of born. How did you keep fear from stopping you, frankly? I, you know, I'm not 100% sure. I would say that some of it started in childhood. You know, I was raised in an alcoholic family, and that also is a situation that engenders a lot of fear in a child who has no sense of control over anything that's going on. And um, so, of course, as an adult, I have been a total control freak, you know. But one of the things that I learned very early on was I had, if I was going to do anything at all, I had to face my fears. And that helped me as a child growing up. It helped me in my career in business early on when there weren't too many women around. It helped me decide to change careers, you know, when I was doing well and here I was going to do this thing that I didn't really know how to do it all. And it helps me in personal relationships. You know, friendships for me are a very, very important part of my life. My friendships with women have helped sustain me since childhood when my family moved around a lot. And the thing that got me through literally were my friendships that I made in each new place that we lived. And that's just something that's continued throughout my life. And I think for me, I've found that my friendships become deeper and more satisfying if I face up to my fears about, oh, I don't want to say that because then she's going to dump me and we're not going to be friends and she's going to hate me and oh my God, now what? And it just every time I do it, assuming that I can find a way that makes sense to do it, it has benefited the relationship. So, you know, the results encourage me, I guess, to keep going. I think that makes total sense. And in Trail Dames, if there's something that you don't have to explain, it's the power of friendship. Because I started Trail Dames thinking we'd be a hiking club. 
And the joke was on me because we are connection organization. Every single event, every single hike, every single dinner, we connect and we make friends and it never seems to end. And it fills up that well in me just as much as the hiking in the outdoors do. So that I 100% understand. I'm going to ask you to put on your coaching hat for a second so you can give some advice. So if I have a woman listening to this that wants to write but doesn't know where to start, what would you tell her to do? Well, what worked for me was several things. One, I kept a journal. Who knows? Someday you may want to write a memoir or you might write personal essays and refer back to your journals for things, especially if as you journal, you allow yourself to be totally free and you'll find that you come up with imagery that you'll want to use elsewhere in whatever kind of writing you do. Secondly, I took classes. I took a lot of classes. I never had a creative writing course in school. So I went to adult education centers. We're fortunate in Boston. We have a major writing center called uh, Grub Street, which offers tons of classes. I went there. Thirdly, I joined or started, if, there, if I couldn't find any, writing groups, because then you have an audience who reads your stuff, who can say to you, I don't know what you're talking about here. You know, I got really confused. Are you, do you mean this or do you mean that? Or you sound really angry here. Is that what you meant? Am I supposed to get that from the writing? You know, all those kinds of things that when you begin writing, you're not sure. You don't know what the reader takes away because you're not used to writing. And then lastly, I would say, and this was something it took me years and years to figure out. Momentum is your friend. In other words, if you write regularly, and by that I mean six times a week, you know, minimum five times a week, doesn't matter for how long, but every time I would start writing and stop writing and then I'd not get back to it for a week or a month or three months or six months. Well, you have to start all over again, of course. You can't remember what you did. You've lost the tone. There's no continuity. And one thing that really helped me learn that lesson was I went to a writer's retreat. I was very lucky. I, I applied to the Vermont Studio Center, and they gave me a grant to come up for it was just about a month, I guess. And everyone there, whether you're a visual artist or a writer, gets a studio. And man, right after breakfast, everybody disappeared. They went off to their studio. So I thought, well, shoot, I guess I have to go to my studio. You know, I wasn't used to writing every day. I wasn't used to writing more than an hour, hour and a half tops. And I'll tell you, by the time I left there, I was writing five, six, seven hours a day. I got momentum and it made everything so much easier. And from then to the finish of the book was many fewer years. Well, I have to tell you that that's going to be one of my major takeaways from this conversation, that when you said momentum is your friend, because I think that's true for any kind of goal setting. It's true for me, climbing a mountain. If I stop and start and stop and start, I'm so exhausted. But if I start and I just keep going, momentum is my friend. It changes my whole experience. And so that right there, 
that's that's going up on my wall. I have a wall where I write all these things <laughs> that, that I think are really important in my life, and I'm putting that on the wall. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, I listened to your podcast about going uh, up a big vertical climb, which I found fascinating and really helpful. And you mentioned momentum in that, and absolutely it's true in hiking. It's really frustrating, as we both know, to start climbing and then have to stop and then start again and stop and start because you you lose your rhythm. And rhythm is, I think, the heart of the enjoyment of any sport. I found that in tennis. I found it in running. I found it in swimming, hiking. Once you find that rhythm, that sweet spot, mm, it does. It gets sweet. You also found it in writing. Yes. I have found, I'm a professional musician. I have found it not just in music, of course, but in the getting better as a musician. You know, that rhythm, that momentum, that starting and then just keeping going. Yeah, everything we want to get better at in this world, that's the secret right there. There we go. It's all just one foot in front of the other. Small steps. Small steps get you there in the end. So the final bit of advice I want you to give our listeners is if they have something that kind of tickles them, this idea of doing something big that's totally scary, like all 48, 40,000 footers, but they just can't pull the trigger, what would you tell them to do? Well, I think that when you have a big goal or if you're dreaming about a big goal, break it up into small pieces and just tackle one piece at a time. So for me, it was the first hike. But I'll tell you, I broke that hike into quarters. And I thought about what is the first quarter. And within that first quarter, I created for myself milestones, like, okay, maybe the first milestone was we crossed a stream. And I knew when we did that, we were three quarters of a mile into it. And then the next milestone was maybe a weird going down 300 feet before we could go back up 700 feet or something, you know, or a bend in the trail or just markers so that I could get myself from one milestone to the next milestone to the next. And then, of course, when I got to the top, this is key, I think, celebrate, you know, do a peak dance. That's what my friends and I started doing. We invented this tradition of the peak dance, just to dance around and make a fool of yourself and be as ridiculous as possible and sing and kick your boots out and have a really good time because you've done the super hard thing and you made it. And who knows if you're going to make it back down, you know? Isn't that the truth? Okay, so please, please, please tell me there's a video somewhere of the peak dance because I have to tell you, in Trail Dames, and actually this have was this came into my life before Trail Dames, I invented, the, I call it the dance of the real woman. And it's when uh-huh. you get to the top of the mountain and you dance and flail around and you kick your boots up and you say really loud, I'm a real woman, I'm a real woman. <laughs> and like you said, you're not sure you're going to get back down, so celebrate it while you can. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you, as a musician, you'll appreciate this. Of course, I I invented the peak dance, which means I invented the really stupid little tune that we sing. And so I'm going to sing it for you. Shall Go I for do it. Okay. Absolutely. Peak dancing, peak dancing. Woo, 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 woo. Peak dancing, peak dancing. Woo, 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 
And that's all it is. And we just, so you could see how ludicrous the whole thing was. Ludicrous and wonderful, because that's another one of our things. When you accomplish that top of the mountain, you got to celebrate it. Don't wait for someone else to celebrate you. You celebrate you. Yes. I'm yes. so with you. Well, I had to tell you, I knew when I read the book that I was going to adore you. And I knew that we were just like friends. I think we're kind of sisters separated from, you know, sisters from another mother, whatever they say. Yeah, separated so, at birth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and many years apart because you're a lot younger than I am. <laughs> I don't know, I'm getting up there. <laughs> so, well, I had to tell you, this has been the most enjoyable conversation. And you have actually just inspired me and motivated me. I'm going to go write stuff on my wall and I'm going to go out and pick a mountain to climb. I'm not coming to the white because it's a long drive. I'm in Atlanta. <laughs> so, but I just, I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this with the Trail Dames. I just think you're fantastic. Oh, Anna, you and Trail Dames inspire me. I have to thank you for that website because it's it's a beauty and it's just a gift to all of us. So thank you. Well, thank you. And we will end on that note. And for all of you guys that are listening, I've got them in the show notes. I've got um, Cheryl's bio. I've got her Facebook and her Twitter. You can totally cyberstalk her if you want. Um, and I've got a link to her book, Run, Do Not Walk, to your nearest bookstore or to Amazon, anywhere you can and buy it. I promise you will not regret it. So Cheryl, I will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Bye, Anna. So I had to tell you guys that literally what you just heard was the first time I'd ever spoken to Cheryl. We'd exchanged emails. I had been cyber stalking her a little bit because I was kind of fangirled out, I have to tell you. But when we started talking to each other, I immediately felt like we were best friends. And when we finished and we stopped the recording, she was like, oh, we've got to do something together sometime, like a workshop or work together. And I was just so excited because she just makes me want to do more. She really, truly inspired me. She's courageous and she's brave, but she's also just a normal woman like all the rest of us. <laughs> and she's 69 years old. If she's still doing all this, well, then the rest of us, we got no excuse. We need to get off our butts and pick some goals and get out there and do it. I hope you enjoy listening to Cheryl and hope you go to the show notes and check out all her links and buy that book. She said it's at some of the REIs. So if you go to your local REI, check out, see if they have it there. So now... Sit back and enjoy a couple of trail journals from my own Appalachian Trail adventures. I appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you so much. Again, I'm Anna Huthmaker. My friends all call me Mudbutt, and you have been listening to the Trail Dames podcast. June 14th. Well, last night was an adventure in sleep. It wasn't that I didn't want to sleep, but there were some very strange noises in the forest last night. And Bumpkin agreed with me that there was something very big moving around out there. Add in the rambunctious mouse that was trying to chew his way into my tent, and you can see why I didn't get a great deal of sleep. Luckily, though, the food bag survived the night unscathed, so morning found us sleepily packing up and getting on our way. We had a little bit more of a climb up to the ridge, and before you knew it, we were walking along the top of the mountain through groves of ferns that grew about waist high. The first three miles went by quickly, and before long, we came to a stile that crosses into a big rolling cow pasture. A stile is a small system of wooden steps that allows you to cross a fence. Most hikers have crossed lots of them at this point, but due to my hiatus from the hike, this was my first one. 
as my name kind of attests, my balance is not very good. So I was a little nervous, but it turned out to be no problem. In fact, I crossed three within the hour, so I pretty quickly got over my fears. As we walked over this huge field that covered the top of the ridge, we saw lots of evidence of cows, but no animals themselves. I was a little disappointed because I wanted to see one close up, but little did I know my time was coming. The second stile we crossed took us over the fence to the shelter, and we stopped by for lunch. There, we ran into Spur and Reddy, two through hikers that have also done the Pacific Crest Trail. They are super hikers and just about as nice as they can be. They told us to be sure to read all the jokes in the register and off they went in the other direction. We were sitting there munching on our lunch when all of a sudden all these cows showed up. They congregated around the fence in front of the shelter and they settled in for their own lunch. There were a ton of babies and a bunch of mothers and one bull that was not interested in us at all. The other cows, however, must have thought we were a food source because they were here to stay. Finally, Bumpkin convinced me that they would get out of our way and that it was safe to go back over the stile. Just to be sure, though, I stood on the very top of the fence. I threw my arms open wide and I said, I am a vegetarian. I come in peace. I do not eat you. Of course, Bumpkin had to start saying, I eat you yum, steak, hamburgers, yum. I just hoped if they were going to attack, they could tell the difference between the vegetarian and the carnivore. After we said goodbye to those cows, we came upon three men that had come up to the top of the world to scatter their mother's ashes. They said that she had lived her whole life down in the valley and that her dying wish was to be scattered up on that mountain. Looking around, I realized that we would all be lucky to rest in such a beautiful place. We spent the rest of the afternoon hiking along in those waist-high ferns, pointing out snails and salamanders to each other. Late in the afternoon, we heard it. Thunder. I'm sure that you know that a ridge is not the best place to be caught in a thunderstorm. And unfortunately, when that ridge is 17 miles long, it's not like you can really run for it. So we just trudged along, trying to avoid the tallest trees. The rain came along, and after it gave us a good soaking, the weather pretended to clear up just as we began to cross this huge meadow. Looking out across the wildflowers and the brambles, you could just see forever. I looked at Bumpkin and I said, you do understand that it has to be done, right? What, she asked, at which point I burst into song. The hills are alive with the sound of music. Bumpkin, being who she is, just joined right in. Near the end of the meadow, we found a beautiful campsite with a view that was just to die for. However, no sooner had we set up our tents and scarfed down some instant potatoes for dinner, a cloud settled right down on top of our mountain and the bottom just opened up. We ran for our tents, grabbed our radios, and we both simultaneously discovered that Prairie Home Companion was on. Well, anyone hiking the AT near us tonight wouldn't be able to see us, but they would hear two women laughing hysterically in their individual tents and then later singing the Star Spangled Banner with the radio audience in honor of today's being Flag Day. Now I'm snuggled in my bed listening to folk music on NPR. All I can see outside my tent is a wall of gray as the cloud has moved in for the night. Tomorrow, I have to put on soaking wet, cold clothes. Ugh. But for now, I am warm and dry, and I'm very, very happy. Love, Mudbutt. June 15th. Well, as far as the hiking went today, I can sum it up in one word. Wet. We got off to a fairly dry start, but within the hour, it was raining. 
and within two hours, it was pouring. It poured for about three and a half hours, and we were just completely soaked. Pumpkin went on ahead to the shelter, and I just squished my way down the trail. And I do mean squish in the very literal sense. My boots were full of water. I was on the verge of getting really mad at the situation. When another hiker came along, he looked at me and he goes, you know, there's a plus to having boots that are completely full of water. I asked him what, pray tell, could be good about this. And he said, now you don't have to watch where you step. You're free. Well, that statement floored me. And yes, he was right. It freed me. I spent the rest of the day stomping in puddles, wading across streams with abandon. It was a beautiful thing. And that's a lesson I'm going to carry for many years to come. Once the sun did come out, I spent a long time going down a series of switchbacks that were exploding with mountain laurel in full bloom. Everything was green and wet. Fog was kind of rolling between the trees and all these beautiful, delicate flowers were kind of hanging down over the trail. It was a fair payoff for spending all those hours soaking wet. After I reached the shelter, I hung out for a few minutes talking to Bumpkin and the other hikers that were there. I wrung out my socks, dumped the water out of my boots, and we headed down the road to meet MG with our food drop. Before we knew it, we were ensconced in a hotel room and headed for dinner. It was a good day. The hiking was good today, but for the most part, I have to tell you, my heart wasn't quite in it. And that's because my heart is with my dad. Today is Father's Day. I spent the hours remembering the things that made me think of him. Things like him singing Oh Holy Night at Christmas. The sound of the Braves game on the radio during late night drives when I was a kid. Any pun, good or bad. And him playing Hot Canary on his violin. These are just a few of the many things that are just dad to me. You have to know that this is a father that I look up to and I love so much. I love him so much. I actually have a scar on my face from trying to shave when I was a kid because I wanted to be just like him. And I really wish I was with him this Father's Day. But since I can't be, I carried him in my heart all day long. I bet he has no idea that he spent the day hiking a Virginia Ridgeline in spirit. I love you, Dad, and I hope that you have had a great Father's Day. Love, Mudbutt. Need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. <laughs> 